There I was, Tyler, Texas. I was learning how to preach. I went and was being taught by my friend named Jesse. He was teaching me how to preach the gospel publicly. I was really excited. I was really nervous. And so we had spent the whole day preaching. It was so exciting. It was so nerve-wracking. And then on the way home, we're, we're driving in his truck that he pulls his, his uh, trailer where he lives. He goes around the campuses preaching the gospel. And so we notice that the lights on the truck start flickering. He starts having engine trouble. Now, how many of you men know enough about cars to get you in trouble? Anybody? Now, I am not the mechanic nor the son of a mechanic, but I have replaced a couple of batteries and a couple of alternators, and so that's enough to at least have a man card. And so I'm like, Jesse, it looks to me like your battery's going out. And he's like, well, I just replaced the battery. And I'm like, well, if it's not the battery, it has to be the alternator. So let's change the alternator. So we go into the auto zone. We pull into the auto zone and I'm like, I'm going to bless this missionary. He's living by faith. And so I get out my card and I go to swipe for the alternator. Card declined. Okay. That was a long time ago, different time, different scenarios, but I had to call the bank, transfer the funds. And so I'm going to bless him. And all the time when I'm trying to uh, call the bank, switch it out, get it ready, get the alternator, uh, I realize that Jesse walks in with the belt. Now, for some of you, you don't realize what the problem is. Let me explain it to you. When you change an alternator, you just simply remove the part, put in a new one, and put two bolts in. In a Hemi, there are eight points of contact on a serpentine belt. That's why they call it a serpent belt. Look how complicated that is. Eight points of contact. There was no cell phone signal. There was no diagram. There was no little sticker on the front of the truck that showed where all the points of the contact were. So can you imagine trying to figure out where the belt goes in that? One hour, two hour, three hours. By this time, we're covered in grease and we're sweating and I'm a little frustrated. He's more sanctified than me. And he's like, let's pray. And I'm like, okay, let's pray. And then you get these two Pentecostal fired up preachers anointing the car with oil, not motor oil, like oil. We're like praying, God, help us. God, help us rebuke this devil belt in the name of Jesus. And so we're trying to figure this out. And for hours, with this, there's, there's no communication. There's no transportation. There's no finances. Everything's broken. Everything's broken. And in walks old man, cigarette in hand. What you boy doing now? Sir, we're having some trouble with the belt. Oh, belt, huh? Well, you guys need help. And that's that moment that humility is the hallmark of God's goodness moment. No, we got it. No, I didn't say that. I was like, please help us. One second, two second, three second, four second, five second, six second, seven second, eight, nine, ten. Well, there you go, boys. Crank it on. Turn it up. Hallelujah! When everything is broken, trust ancient wisdom. 
When everything is broken, trust ancient wisdom. Turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be reading the entire fourth chapter in a second. But before we do that, I want to give you some background. Now, if you're just joining us in our From the Ruins series, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. So I want to give you some context, some background to the story. Because this is a time in the history of Israel where everything was broken. Now, to know where we are in the story, you need to know that Nehemiah is actually part two. That before Nehemiah, there was actually a book called Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book together before scholars divided it. So we're actually in part two. But I want to give you a a brief backdrop. Here we go. Before there was Nehemiah in the story, there was actually a leader named Zerubbabel. In fact, this story is actually three, three distinct different leaders and the three distinct problems that they faced. Zerubbabel's problem was that the temple had been ransacked and been destroyed, that, that, that there wasn't proper worship in the temple. So Zerubbabel led the people to restore worship in the temple of God. And he gets almost to its conclusion, but the people begin to worship improperly. The story picks up with another leader rising up, not to work on the temple, but to work on the community, to work on the people. His name was Ezra, and Ezra was dealing with all the different tribes, all the different people of Israel coming together in peace, and there was conflict, and he's trying to bring harmony, he's trying to bring shalom, he's trying to bring the people back into right relationship with each other so that they can be in right relationship with God. And yet that ends in conflict. And now we get to this part of the story where the third leader steps in. And his job is not to restore worship. His job is not to restore community. His job is to restore security. His job is to rebuild the wall. He's in a far off distant land. He hears about the state of Israel, gets burdened in his heart, and he asks for finances and he goes to rebuild the wall and rally the people and families of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall for security. But once again, there's conflict and there's trouble. When everything is broken, look to ancient wisdom. Now, in recent events, you might feel like everything's broken. You might things think that they're, you know, if you think about this last year, worship's not really the same as it used to be. Community is not used the same as it used to be. Our security is not the same as it used to be. I mean, this moment, I, was, I knew it was a, a, a very critical moment in our nation. So I was, God, give me a word. Give me a word for our church family. This is an important hour, God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, it says this, Nevertheless, nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We, according to his promises, look to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Our church, we must look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we think about worship, when we think about our community, when we think about security, I want us to think about what we're looking at, what our eyes are upon, what's on our scope, our perspective. Think about worship, not in the here, not in the moment. I want us to look 
from an eternal perspective, from ancient wisdom. Can you see all the saints of all the ages in heaven worshiping the Lamb, worshiping the Lord and the beauty of holiness? Can that be your perspective? Not looking here in the now, but looking to the future. When we think about community, don't look about the parks that they're empty or the HEB that's empty or how things are different or how school is different. Think of the time when we'll all be together, all the saints of all the nations will be with the Lord, forever to be with the Lord. Imagine that day where we'll be together with the Lord in perfect fellowship. When we think about the security, don't look at the here and the now. Think of the great city that's not built with hands, a place where there's no turmoil, a place where there's no sin, a place where all the tears will be wiped away, a city not built with hands. I believe the reason that many of us are discouraged now is because we're too earthbound. We're looking too much at the temporal, the here and the now. We have to have an eternal and ancient perspective. Many people are depressed. Here's why. Your scope affects your hope. What you're looking at. Are you looking for a city not built with hands? Are you looking for a fellowship eternal and true? But most importantly of all, are you looking to the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus of Nazareth? This is why it's so important I believe we are in the last days. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, Jesus explicitly tells us where our hearts need to be during this time. He says, here is the patience of the saints. In these times, in these days, we need patience. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep his commandments the keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? The one thing that we need in the last days is patience. We need patience in our hearts. But patience and hope are linked. They go together. We need to have that hope eternal that one day we'll be forever with God, with each other, worshiping him forever and ever. That is our hope. Keep our eyes on Jesus not on the here and the now. Now let us turn with your Bibles, with that background, to Nehemiah in the fourth chapter. Now we're going to read the whole chapter because we're elevating the word of God in this church. Amen? Amen. Amen. But when it so happened, when Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, they were furious and they were mad. They were indignant. These are the enemies of God. And they mocked the Jews And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones in the heap of rubbish, stones that were burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity, and do not let their sins be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Can you say mind to work? work. 
Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashadites and the Parasites, that's not in there, I added that, that they heard that the walls of Jerusalem were beginning to be restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayers to God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there's so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said that they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us 10 times from whatever place they turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall and behind the, behind the openings. And I set the people according to their families, according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord is great and awesome and fight, your, and fight for your brethren, your sons, and your daughters, and your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked construction and with the other hand they held a weapon. I'm grateful for the word of the Lord this morning. I believe it is pertinent for us. There's a problem. Everyone knows what the problem is. The wall must be rebuilt. Everyone knows what the problem is. You know, I did some construction for a couple of years, and it was always easy to know that something was broken or something that needed to be repaired. You know, you can easy, any man can walk up and see a giant hole in a roof and go, look at that hole. It's a quite different thing to know how to repair that and how to fix that. And in this moment, when we see that the wall is broken, when we see this great trouble, we must trust in the ancient wisdom on how to rebuild. You know, this is an ancient story, but I believe it has present real-life application. I want us to turn to the New Testament where Peter begins to say something so interesting, something that's so parallel. Nehemiah is talking about a wall, but all of a sudden in the New Testament, they're talking about another wall, another, another building, more stones being stacked upon another. First Peter in the second chapter, verses four through six that we are to come to him, speaking of Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones, living stones. You ever thought of yourself as a living stone? You are living stones, are being built up to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures. Did you ever think that you were a living stone? Did you ever think that you were part of God's building, God's house? One of the other translations says that we are living stones stacked one upon another, each in its own place, set there by the maker. Now, when we, when we look at the wall, it's easy to see that there's a problem, that it's a mess, that everything's broken. It's a whole nother thing to begin to work and to fix the problem. Now, if we know that we're living stones, then what is the solution to the problem? Very simply, let me say it in all clarity. I believe the solution to the problem in America, the problem in a church, the solution is simple. Evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Discipleship, what does it have to do with stones? Well, Peter tells us that we're living stones stacked one upon the other. Each one's set in place. And in order for discipleship to take place, it must take place in the context of a relationship. There, in my life, I had a man invest in me. He saw something in me that I didn't see. And he began to wet work and labor and spend countless hours shaping and molding me. He taught me how to pray. He taught me how to read the Bible. He taught me how to fear God. Life on life impartation. Discipleship is, is that. Jesus had disciples. Jesus did this. He invested his life into men through the context of a small group, in the context of relationship. And Jesus was a builder. Did you know his dad was a carpenter? Now, when we think carpenter, we think two by fours. But in Jerusalem, there's... You build houses with stones, not with wood. So Jesus' occupation was a mason, a stone stacker. He would have built walls. Now you know why Jesus talks about stones so much. The stone that the builders refused had become the head of the corner. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He who causes a little one to stumble, a stone will be thrown upon his neck and he'll go into the ocean. You see, Jesus was a builder. He invested his life into men. Jesus had a small group. We must be in small group. But sometimes, sometimes it doesn't fit. Sometimes it, there needs to be discipleship taking place. That's where the chisel and the hammer come into place. Now, this is the part where people don't like. But there's a problem. And you have to fix the problem. The wall needs to be rebuilt. Sometimes there needs to be conversations. Kyle, Kyle, you have two ears and one mouth. See, no one likes that, but it's needed. Kyle, you need to honor the Lord with your money. That was a big one. And it, don't worry about the mess. Discipleship is messy. That's why no one does it. Discipleship is hard. It takes time. It takes knowledge and wisdom to know how to place one stone upon another but don't reject the chisel. Don't reject the people in your life who are shaping you and conforming you into the image and likeness of Jesus. They're the people you desperately need. You see, we are a church not that has small groups. We are a church of small groups. This church started as small groups. 
And it's our will and desire for every one of us to be in small groups, to be in relationship together. And it's not always just a chisel. It is a great delight as well. It's where I learned to pray. It's where I learned to worship. The greatest friends of my life I had in small group. You see, this is the solution. Some of you are so worried about all of, all of the issues, all of our leaders. What if they were thoroughly discipled? Can you name one problem in our nation that couldn't be solved without discipleship? Discipleship could solve all of our problems. And it just so happens to be the command of Christ. What? Notice, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in another. They had a sword in one hand and a trowel in another. They were ready to build one another up. They were ready to set the stones, but they were also ready to fight. They were also ready to evangelize. This sword represents the sword of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that that is the word of God. That the kingdom advances not, not through weapons of carnal warfare, not through physical swords. We don't advance the kingdom that way, but we do advance the kingdom through the word of God, through evangelism. You see, how we're going to fix this wall is being ready to fight, always being ready, removing the rubbish, removing the things out of our life that don't belong, and in wisdom, stacking stones. Stacking stones carefully, methodically, patiently, being ready to invest our lives into others, building them up, but always being ready to fight, always being ready to evangelize, always being looking for that next person who knows, needs to know about the love of God in Christ Jesus, always being ready to share the hope that is within you. You see, we can, fill the, we can rebuild the wall if we're faithful to the commands of Christ to make disciples and preach the gospel. But we can't do it alone. Every family, every house worked on their section together. So many people... I saw this week, so many people are worried about the White House. What about your house? What about your children? What about your families? Are there stones that have people's names on them in your life? Have you ever put a stone on the wall? Have you ever invested your life so much so into other people? Like spiritually invest, spiritually disciple, spiritually build them up so much so that you can look at the wall and say, there they are. There's my heritage. There's my heritage in the Lord. There's my love for you, Jesus. It's in people. It's in stones placed on the wall. You see, I'll say this humbly. Many of us have been working for a long time. And many of us have been building stones and setting them on the wall. But it's time for our church all to take part. 
All of us have a place. All of us have a role. And you might not be in the building stage right now. Right now, you might be in the chiseling stage. Don't reject the chisel. It's wisdom for your life. Let it shape you into the image of Christ. This is what I want to speak on. So many people are critical, right? There's a problem. There's a problem, problem, problem. All they're talking about is problems. Before you criticize, mobilize. Before you criticize, are you evangelizing? Are you discipling? Jesus gives us the answer. I think of recent events, all the craziness that happened at the Capitol. Well, there was one guard who didn't move during all of that. It was a man guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. And for decades and decades, they have been at that post guarding the tomb. Every hour on the hour, the guards switch and they say the same thing. Orders remain unchanged. They were told by their commander in chief to guard the tomb. And so they guard the tomb. I wonder if the church of Jesus has forgotten the orders of Jesus. I wonder if we've forgotten our commander in chief's great commands to make disciples of all nations and preach the gospel to all creation. Don't criticize, mobilize, but know this, when you do begin to do this, it will be messy, that's okay. My wife bought me these beautiful Christmas boots and I have made a mess of them. It is messy. If you do this, just like in the story with Nehemiah, people will criticize you. Oh, you'll never finish. Who are you? Look at these Jews trying to rebuild the wall, and they mock them. You're going to receive criticism when you do the works of God. If you begin to evangelize and you begin to disciple, you receive hostility. But don't take that as a sign that you're going in the wrong way. Take that as a sign that you're going in the right way. Because you can have it one or two ways, but you can't have it both. You can have the acceptance of God and the rejection of the world, or you can have the rejection of God and the acceptance of the world. You can't have it, the right, you can't have it both ways. But know this, whenever criticism does come when you're evangelizing or when you're discipling, realize that it means that you're on target. In World War II, the, the aircraft bombers, the pilots, they knew that they were right where they needed to be when they received the most resistance and the most anti-aircraft fire. They knew that they were over the target. In the same way, in the work of God, when you're receiving the rejection and hostility of the world, it's an indicator that you're doing what God told you to do. And Jesus has told us to make disciples and evangelize the lost. Will you join us? Will you help us rebuild the wall? Will you end your criticism and start your discipleship? Maybe you sat on the sidelines and now it's time to evangelize. Maybe you always wondered what your life would look like actively engaging and not just observing. Many of us need to commit to being in a small group. That's where life-on-life life transformation happens. That's the heartbeat of our church. We want every single person within the sound of my voice to be 
in a small group, in a relationship, so you can learn to pray, so that you can learn the Bible, so that you can have real relationships and real fellowship, so that you can be corrected and guided and transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. Would you join a small group? Some of you in small groups, it's time. You've been in the nest long enough. Now it's time for you to fly and build your own small group. You need to have that conversation with your small group leader. What, does it mean, what do I need to do so that I can take responsibility? And for all of us, in these days, we need to commit to discipleship, but we also need to commit to evangelism, the trial and the sword. We all need to take an active reference point on what we're doing to actively advance the cause of Christ. Now, for some of us, this is a little scary, so simply, you can start this way. This week, you can invite three of your friends to church. Now, that's not the end goal. Eventually, it's not about inviting people just to church. We ultimately need to be inviting people to Jesus. But that is a great place to start to start by inviting people to church. And then in addition to that this week, let's try this. Let's invite three people to church and let's invite one person to Jesus. I want you to think about that. Is that something I practically can do? Could I join a small group? Could I lead a small group? Could I invite people? Could I lead someone to Jesus? You see, this is the practical part. You see, Nehemiah made a call. Help me rebuild the wall. And the people of God responded. And they built and they fought. They had trowel in hand, sword in hand. They rebuilt the wall. And I believe we can rebuild the wall through evangelism and discipleship. I'm now going to give a response. If you are going to make a commitment to join a small group, one of the practical things we want to do is we want to just see who you are. We have small group leaders all throughout our congregation. If you're a small group leader, go ahead and raise your hand real quick. Look, they're all over the place. But if if you want to join a small group today, we're going to do something very simply. We've opened up the den It's the living room outside, and we would love to invite you to the den where you can find a small group for you that's close to your house that can provide spiritual oversight and care for you. But we're going to make a call, a public call, to join a small group. If you know that you're going to join a small group and you know that you need to join a small group, could you stand with me right now? Thank you. For those standing, I would like to advise you at the end of service, just go to the den, and we'd love to meet you and love to plug you in. Now for the rest of us, I'm going to make a call for this evangelism. If you're going to join us in rebuilding the wall, and you're going to invite three of your friends to church, and you're going to invite one person to know Jesus, to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus, if you're going to do that, we ask you now to stand. Wow, praise God. Thank you. What that simply looks like 
is you just trying. I've seen people come to know Jesus through the worst gospel presentations in the world. I know because I gave them. You try. You tell the story of what Jesus has done in your life and what he has done on the cross and watch the Holy Spirit, the helper, come and help. Amen. Now can we all stand? Nehemiah spoke with burden. All of our evangelism, all of our discipleship, it must be done from a heart of burden. To those of us here and to those of us watching online, allow God's burden be the fuel for years of love and service to him. Allow his burden be the motive of your investment in others and your outreach. Lord Jesus, share your burden. Amen.